Kia ora, ko Anne O'Brien toku ingoa, he kaiorongi o waituhi o tamaki, no mai, haru mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2021 event. 22 years ago, the Auckland Writers Festival burst into literary life, propelled by the ambitious advocacy of writers Stephanie Johnson and the late Peter Wells, who wanted to showcase our talent to our people. Johnson takes stock of how the New Zealand literary landscape has changed across the era. Have we grown up? grown out, grown at all, or are we still trying to find our place? In the University of Auckland free public lecture, Stephanie Johnson provides a spirited assessment of the state of play and some provocative suggestions for the future. We hope you enjoy it. Kia ora, and uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, It's quite a brief, isn't it, to be given the last 20 years of literary endeavor in Aotearoa. And like anyone given that brief, this lecture will no doubt be colored by my own tastes and prejudices. And I ask in advance that you forgive me for that. By my calculations, I have a little over 30 minutes, half an hour to cover 22 years. I'm reminded of my 50th birthday party, which was actually 10 years ago. where after several glasses of wine, I thanked friends for coming, but forgot to thank certain important people who had come a long way and who were very distressed by the omission. There will be writers, publishers, and booksellers I leave out, and if I do, it's not necessarily because I do not respect or enjoy them, and this time I can't blame the wine. (laughs) In 1988, The late Peter Wells and I gathered together a group of writers, publishers, booksellers, and general literary types together to form the Auckland Writers' Festival, which ran for the first time in 1999. A glance through the pages of that first program demonstrates that many of the big names in NZ Lit are still with us now. Guests included Tessa Duda, Morris G. Briar Grace Smith, Rene, Catherine Chidji, who that year had won the Montana Book Award, Witi Ihimaira, Shona Koya, Lloyd Jones, Vincent O'Sullivan, Anne Kennedy, Albert Went, Peter Simpson, David Hercht, and Michelle Leggett. It also included a number of writers who are sadly no longer with us Michael King, Rosie Scott, Bill Payne, Arthur Basting, Gordon McLaughlin, Margaret Mahi, and of course, my dear friend, Peter Wells. Writers do die, just like everyone else. At least they die physically. As Sue McCauley said to me after Rosie Scott's death in 2017, the good thing about your writer friends dying is that they leave bits of themselves behind on your bookshelves. That first festival, ably managed by Penelope Hansen, was a much more modest affair than the extravaganza that Anne O'Brien and her team now provide. There were international guests, Luke Davies and the late Dorothy Porter from Australia, Kate O'Riordan from Ireland, Lawrence Block from America, and the controversial Felipe Fernandez Armesto from Britain, 
And there were, of course, audiences, tiny in comparison to contemporary throngs. In a sense, we had to educate Aucklanders as to what a writer's festival was, even though there had been attempts in the past to establish such a thing. As long ago as 1936, there was an author's week, and other attempts in later decades to involve audiences with local writers. Nevertheless, some people thought that our festival was for writers only. Some would have agreed with Auckland-born early to mid-20th century writer Henry Walpole, who remarked, an author talking of his own works is to me a dose of E. Pekakwana. <laughs> and for those who don't know what E. Pekakwana is, the Shorter Oxford defines it as a low or creeping plant causing vomit. <laughs> there were writers themselves who had that opinion. Our original intentions were not to make people vomit, but to provide a venue outside the universities where people could come together to be inspired by ideas. And these ideas, just as in recent and, and in this festival, were to spring from every field of human endeavour, scientific, culinary, horticultural, poetical, political, literary, and from the visual and dramatic arts. Another early and amply realised ambition was to build a bridge across the Tasman and involve Australian writers. We were perhaps more generous towards scribes from the big red rock than they were to us, and in that regard we were also swimming across what was by then a strong tide. In the expatriate myth, Helen Bones remarks, if New Zealanders and Australians tend to ignore each other's books nowadays, it is most likely the result of the subsequent triumph of their respective cultural nationalisms. Even if you know nothing of the history of our relationship, the nowadays and the subsequent will tell you that it was not always so. Much earlier in the 20th century, our literary culture was more entwined. In the early early to mid-21st century, it is those cultural nationalisms that drive us further apart. If I was to pinpoint one major change in our respective cultural nationalisms, which is not really the brief of this lecture, <laughs> I would say that as Australia looks more towards Asia and the United States, we look more towards the Pacific. We also look harder and more honestly at ourselves and at who we really are. Those of us growing up in the mid-20th century had very few children's books that were written by New Zealanders and set here. It was a confusing time to grow up as a reader because we were rarely reflected back at ourselves. This was not so much a problem as you might expect because thinking about yourself then was discouraged because it encouraged narcissism and selfishness. The great egalitarian ideal, politically and personally, engaged with the principle of common good. Even so, many of us were inculcated with an idea that the center of mainstream culture was 18,000 kilometers away in a certain other tiny island nation that had far less sheep and many more people. Generations of us set off for that country, imbued with the certainty that if we made it there, we could make it anywhere, and that those left behind would applaud us. 
<coughs> excuse me, New Zealand writers living overseas would sometimes write harshly about the country they had left behind, how lonely and isolated it was, how boring, how conservative, how, how cruel the drab inhabitants were to dazzling intellectuals, namely themselves. <laughs> For that reason, perhaps, some did not hear the thunderous applause they so longed for. Others found the distance enabled them to express their love and curiosity for their homeland and fared better in New Zealand bookshops. A famous example is that, of that is Witty Ihemeira, who over a six-month period in London in 1970 completed his first collection of short stories, Ponamu, Ponamu, and two novels, Tāngi and Fano. The second festival ran in 2001, two years after the first, because we were not sure that Aucklanders would come if we ran the festival annually. It might be too much too soon. That year, New Zealanders included Kevin Ireland, Elizabeth Knox, whose The Vintner's Luck had at that stage been on the bestseller list for a year, Alan Duff, Kate de Goldie, Anna-Marie Jagos, Deborah Chalinor, Owen Marshall, Marilyn Duckworth, Sia Figel, Greg McGee, James Griffin, the creator of the television series Outrageous Fortune, and also Martin Edmund, who jetted in from Sydney. Green MP Nandor Tanchas talked to Brit British poet Benjamin Zephaniah. Carol Bew turned, talked to American the American Margaret Vertheim, who had just published The Pearly Gates of Cyberspace, billed as A History of Space from Dante to the Internet. The Internet! <laughs> it seems extraordinary now, but then, only 20 years ago, we had no real perception of how much the Internet was going to affect every aspect of our lives, especially the part that pertains to the written word. The invention of Facebook was three years away. The emergence of Kindle Direct Publishing wasn't until 2007. Around that time, I was often asked to take part, as I know many writers were, in debates about the death of the book. It seemed that publishing as we knew it was on death row. It seemed that readers, readers waited on the literary levy, about to be swamped by dirty water drowned in written work by anyone in possession of any semblance of literacy. It seemed that traditional publishers were to lose their posts on the sea wall, where they had previously, to a greater or lesser extent, protected us from inane, poorly written, poorly researched, and just plain bad work. The technological revolution coincided with another idea doing the rounds, or not so new. I first heard it from an academic and feminist poet in the 80s, but she hadn't invented it. It was an idea that gained traction and influence at the same time as the internet infiltrated our lives. There is no such thing as bad writing. It was a notion that had the weight and heft of the earlier death of the playwright. It was the death of the writer. Or was it, actually, the birth of millions upon millions of writers? The academic may have been right, 
It is a difficult idea to debate without one side accusing the other of anything from elitism, cultural imperialism, non-binary prejudice, racism, and sexism. One man's poison is, one, is one woman's bread and wine, and vice versa. To adhere to standards is a waste of time. The idea that must survive and will survive is that each reader has an opinion of what makes good or bad writing. You might love rapidly written romance. She might love a novel that took the writer a decade to create. He might enjoy graphic violence. They might like tepid tales of middle-class adultery. Some readers devour the likes of The Da Vinci Code or Fifty Shades of Porn. Others would biff them into the paper recycling, deeming them not even good enough for the op shop. <laughs> Taste in our reading is often dictated by genre and more broadly by whether or not generally, or just at that point in time, we prefer, prefer literary or commercial fiction. This divide is one that increasingly blurs and can be further defined by so-called high-end commercial fiction and commercial fiction that is not high-end and often defined by its detractors as pulp or trash. Famously, Graham Greene divided his novels into serious works and what he called entertainments. Carl Nixon's recent The Tally Stick is a shining example of a brilliant, beautifully told, high-end commercial novel. One of the early criticisms that Peter Wells and I fielded in the early years of the festival was that we were too commercial. This charge was laid by those who were involved in literary endeavors fully funded by the state and other parts of the country. <laughs> Here in Auckland, Viewed by certain individuals as a cultureless wasteland of car yards and fast food outlets, we depended not only on, in those days, a small amount of state funding, but also, as the festival does now, sponsorship from private enterprise, generous patrons and ticket sales. We needed big authors to bring in the punters, which had the flow-on effect of helping to finance events that concentrated on local writers. We purposely mixed panels of international and local writers so that audiences could discover books that were written, being written right under their noses, as it were. And we could say that this paid off, though not so arrogantly as to think it was the festival that engineered this change. Only a few years ago, booksellers would tell you that New Zealand fiction stayed on the shelf, that it was difficult to move, that readers were more interested in books that were written and set elsewhere, that people were looking for escape. Now, that is not so true. Readers do want to read New Zealand books. They particularly want to read book work by Māori writers. After its publication in 2019, Pūtako, Māori Myths Retold, edited by Witi Ihimaira and Fiti Hiraka, was reprinted four times to meet local demand. Becky Manawatu's Oe has been on the bestseller list for over a year and collected many awards, including the Ockham and Ngai Marsh. Patricia Grace, 
Tina Makariti, James George, Kerry Hume, Alan Duff, Briar Grace Smith, Nick Lowe, J.P. Pumari, Kelly Anna Mori, Paula Morris, Renee, Tayi Tibble, Aparana Taylor. These are only a small selection of names that are now familiar to the reading public. There is a big push for books to be published in Te Reo, not only translated works, but works that originate in the language. In fact, concern is expressed that too much emphasis is being put on translation, that proficient speakers and writers should be creating their own work. For many years now, publishers have been on the lookout for Māori writers, and far from holding prejudice against them, as is the common misconception, these writers may encounter a gentler, more nourishing reception than generally experienced. Gone! are the days of any idea of Māori writers operating in some kind of gulag. Now, I imagine some of you are bristling. How dare I, a Pākehā, make this call? And I can only answer that this view comes from long observation, reading, and also an overwhelming sense of relief that we have finally got there. It took a while. This focus on Māori writing is having some interesting knock-on effects on some younger writers, who for ease of reference, though I loathe the term, I'll call non-Māori. There is currently a sense of unease, almost paralysis. If I am not Māori, then who am I? What can I say that has any relevance to who we are now, here? What am I allowed to say about Māori if I am not Māori? In the last decades of the 20th century and into this, non-Māori writers were often exhorted not to include Māori characters or issues. It is something that I personally and publicly reject. How could I write novels set in New Zealand and not have Māori characters? To me, that seemed the epitome of racism. Was I supposed to pretend Māori didn't exist? I have never received any public criticism for creating Māori characters, but I have been aware of other writers going out of their way to obey the edict. They self-censored. As I remarked in my 2019 social history, West Island, future scholars may look back on mainstream work of this period with bafflement and confusion and suspect these writers of a degree of racism that they didn't possess. In other words, this self-censorship may have the very opposite effect of what those writers intended. I'm not saying that these writers were wrong to do what they did. They were not. They were doing what they felt comfortable doing and it cuts both ways. I remember Witi Ihimaira reworking some of his early novels with the express purpose of fleshing out some of his Pākehā characters now that he knew more about us. <laughs> Among the names I mentioned a moment ago was that of J.P. Pumari, an excellent young writer living in Melbourne. He serves as an introduction to thinking about crime writing in New Zealand and how it is undergoing a vibrant and powerful renaissance Crime writing in our country has a proud history, beginning, of course, with Dame Ngaio Marsh. In more recent decades, Christchurch writer Paul Cleave has dazzled here and abroad. His debut, The Cleaner, is one of New Zealand's best sellers ever, both at home and on more distant markets. 
In the 1990s, Paul Thomas, dubbed by Craig Sisterson as the godfather of Kiwi crime writing, gave us three novels centred on Māori detective Tiko Ihaka. 32-year-old Auckland, Aucklander Ben Sanders, a kind of enfant terrible, whose first three novels were written when he was still at university, has gone from strength to strength. Greg McGee had us all fooled when he presented two novels written by a mysterious woman called Alex Bosco. Fiona Kidman picked up the Ngai Marsh Award for her moving and closely researched novel, This Mortal Boy. Both Fiona and Greg had, if you like, gone sideways from their respective professions as literary novelist and television writer into writing crime novels. If I return to the days that I sat wide-eyed listening to an elder tell me that there was no such thing as good or bad writing, I also recall the emergence of another idea, which was, genre is dead. Nay, it never was. But for a while, the notion was intoxicating. What if we did away with it? What if a novel formed its own shape in the reader's mind with ingredients drawn from any and all genre? Support for this idea came from many quarters, not least from writers of crime and romance who were tired of being regarded as lesser figures than their more literary compatriots. Roll the clock forward a few decades, though, and genre is just as strong as ever. Among the best of our literary writers are the extraordinary linguists Charlotte Randall and Tracy Slaughter. Because of the dense proficiency of their language, their books could never be regarded as, as commercial fiction. Literary writers may envy genre writers for the lack of scrutiny applied to their work. A recently published commercial novel by a New York Times best-selling New Zealander has a Māori family casting the ashes of a deceased relative into the ocean. Nobody, as far as I know, has battered an eyelid. Genre writers are not seriously reviewed, nor, as the very successful Nikki Pellegrino has commented, find themselves in line for Arts Council grants or residencies. Ah, the beleaguered literary writer will counter, but look at your sales figures. Look at the size of your print runs. Look at your bank balance. Alas, for many genre writers, their incomes are as limited as their more lofty peers. Books will take off or not. In recent years, publishing companies have taken some serious hits. The source of these hits are many, beginning with the global financial crisis in 2008. This resulted in serious contraction of publishing houses. You may be aware that Janet Frame sent an early novel to 40 publishers before it was accepted. These days you might struggle to find 40 publishers. Here in New Zealand, much beloved Reeds was sold to Pearson and lost the use of its imprint. Internationally, UK publishing house Hodder and Starton became part of Hachette Leave. Random House absorbed at least 10 independent publishers and is now itself aligned with Penguin. When that first happened, it seemed to many of us as unlikely as the Pope getting into bed with Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> there was serious rivalry 
between those of us published by either Penguin or Random, and also a sense of loyalty. During the 20 years of the AWF, many independent publishers have emerged. Makaro Press, Huia Publishers, Te Papa Press, Upstart Press, and Mary Egan Publishing are just a few of many homegrown examples. These companies offer hope to writers and variety to readers, filling the gaps with books that major international publishers may not be willing to take on. Another serious challenge to traditional publishing is, of course, the internet, that of potential audiences having countless alternatives to buying and reading books. In 2005, Facebook had 6 million users. Currently, it has 2.80 billion monthly users. There is also the phenomenon of self-publishing, which further saturates the reading market. Amazon's Kindle Direct, as I learned recently to my cost, makes many alluring offers to writers. You get all the money, not just the 10% due after the earning out of royalties. You can run your own advertising campaign, but you pay for every click made by a prospective reader whether or not the book is bought. Closer examination will show that the books that really make money are books that are about making money. <laughs> Fantasy and romance writers may also do well, but they often publish vast quantities of rapidly written volumes. Steph Green, a New Zealand paranormal, paranormal romance writer of over 30 books, is on record for saying that she makes 200000 a year. Self-publishing can be the beginning of a stellar writing career, with writers being picked up by trade publishers after proving themselves on the self-publishing scene. Waikato writer Julie Thomas had this experience in 2013 when she published The Keeper of Secrets on Amazon Kindle and Smashwords. After 45,000 downloads, the novel was picked up by HarperCollins New York, and she has gone on to publish other books with them. Conversely... There are dark tales of writers manipulating the figures so that their books present as bestsellers. Often when readers are told a book is a bestseller, this will persuade them to buy the book also. Ditto the book prize lists. I am saddened every time I hear someone say that they only read the prize lists, which very often reflect current fashion and the judges' tastes rather than their actual worth. Self-publishing is not actually new. Barry Crump, for example, self-published some of his own books as BC Productions. Food writer Annabelle Langbein self-publishes but may trade on her already substantial public profile. Steve Braunius's Luncheon Sausage, which publishes his own works as well as some by other writers, may also benefit from the fact that its proprietor is renowned. An unknown self-published writer is likely to struggle to get above the clamour and be noticed. All of the above has not necessarily dampened writers' enthusiasm for sending manuscripts to traditional publishers. Penguin Random New Zealand received about 600 submissions a year, and this includes fiction, non-fiction and children's books, with the vast majority being fiction and works for children. In recent times, the company has published around 50 books per annum, 
and most of those coming from already established writers or work that has been commissioned. University presses also receive many submissions and occupy a necessary place in the nation's literary health. As an example, Victoria University Press averages at about one submission a day, publishes around 30 books a year, and many of these subsequent books from previously published writers. Sometimes, here in the city of car yards, fast food joints, and the Auckland Writers' Festival, we hear moaning about how VUP publishes everything that comes out of the Institute of Modern Letters. This is not true. The figure sits more at around 15%. Most famous of these published graduates is Eleanor Catton, who went on to win the Booker Prize with the Luminaries. A glance over the shortlists for the Ockham Prize demonstrates the continuing critical success of VUP, particularly in poetry and fiction. This year, Pip Adams shortlisted Nothing to See as VUP, as is Irene Botrace, who won last night, Bug Week, as is Catherine Chigi's Remote Sympathy. Poets Huni Moana Baker and Tusiata Avia and essayist Madison Hamill also hail from VUP. What is going on? Fergus Barrowman, publisher since 1985, obviously has a very mysterious winning formula. Poets in the audience will be relieved that I have at long last mentioned the word poets. And I'm sorry it's taken me so long. It's more of a sin than it could be because poetry in the past decade has also had a vibrant renaissance. We have had collections from much loved and respected poets such as Anne Kennedy, Michelle Leggett, Bill Manhire, David Eggleton and Ian Weddy, and debuts from poets that have startled and amazed such as Hera Lindsay Bird, Gregory Kahn and Tae Tibble. Poetry readings around the country are well patronised and lively. It seems that this is not just a national phenomenon. Around the world, poetry is being rediscovered as a way of intimate communication and entertainment for time-poor people. Our recent experience of the, of the pandemic has made many of us less time-poor. It would seem that reading in general has been rediscovered. Bookshops are seeing unprecedented demand, not only for internationally published books, but as I said before, for books written by New Zealanders. Children, too, are apparently reading more, which is something that those of us in the business are very glad about, not only those of us that write for children. The 2005 festival heralded the arrival of the dedicated and marvellous Jill Rawnsley, who began in the same role as Penelope Hansen had occupied, festival manager, but whose role adapted fairly quickly to festival director. In 2010, Jill introduced the now very successful section of the festival designed specifically for children, the schools programme, which has had the flow-on effect of creating audiences. Numbers of readers grew up with yearly attendances at our festival, having been bussed in as kids and now attending as individuals. In 2010, New Zealand children's authors were Anna McKenzie, Des Hunt and the late lamented William Taylor. Storylines, a festival designed specifically for young, children, for young readers, was already in existence and we were mindful of not stepping on their toes. This year, 
and only partly because we are mostly talking to one another and not so much to writers from overseas, the school's lineup is stellar. Bernard Beckett, Weng Wai Chan, Catherine Chidji, Paul Green, Paula Green, Dominic Hoy, Dan Salmon, and Shiloh Kino, among others. The writing of memoir in a small country like ours comes with the added risk of offence. Over the years, we have had many panels and workshops on the genre where the question is posed, how much of our lives do any of us actually own? If COVID had not hit, last year's festival would have brought us Linda Burgess, who bravely wrote Someone's Wife, a memoir of her childhood and marriage to all black Robert Burgess. In that last event, she was to share the stage with Rose Liu, whose All Who Live on Islands was certainly one of my reading highlights of 2019. I would have loved to have heard these two consummate writers, diverse in age, race and style, discuss their practice and approach. This year's festival is rich with memoir. Ghazali Golbash will take us to Iran. Prize-winning Barrows Bouchani shows the horrors of Australian detention camps. Sue Kedgley and Ngahuya Te Awa Kotuku talk about their journeys as feminists. Charlotte Grimshaw shows us what it was like to grow up as a stead. And this is only a small example, a small sample. If poetry is having its day in the sun, then so is memoir. It could be interesting to muse for a moment on why that might be so, but before I begin, I'd like to recall for you how I was as a young writer. It wasn't until after my third novel was published, which I, it was my fifth book, that I agreed to do an interview. And only then, because there was a contractual agreement, that was a contractual agreement with my publisher. Until then, and still now, in my heart of hearts, I believe that it was of no consequence who had written the book, or who had painted the picture, or directed the film. What mattered was the work of art itself. Plainly, at this point of time, this is firmly against the zeitgeist. The world is full of monologue, whether it's on Twitter or Facebook or the printed page. We are wary of those who speak for those who they are not. Even writers as luminary as Australia's Tom Keneally has stated that he would never again, as he did in his 1972 novel, The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, assume to speak on behalf of what he wasn't, in this case, Aboriginal. The writer's provenance may overwhelm imagination, artistry and humanity, but if a book purports to be a memoir, then we can trust it to be true, or at least believe that it is written in an authentic voice. Authenticity assures us that the writer knows the subject. Is this then also a result of the changing nature of research? 20 years ago, oh, hang on a minute. This was my worst nightmare that I would lose a page, and I have. It's not sitting down there on the table, is it? Oh, it must be on my desk at home. Oh, no, here it is. It's because I'm blind. Just as well this isn't being recorded, honestly, I'm so batty. All right. 
20, 20 years ago, when the internet was in its infancy, research was a lengthy process by, a process by means of libraries, archives, and personal contact with people who may have experienced the subject or theme of the novel. All of this took time. Writers were respected then, not so much for who or what they were, but for what they knew. Now, it is a much faster road to knowledge, although not necessarily as reliable a one. The researcher has a narrower focus. Enriching discoveries made accidentally along the way may not be so abundant. And this, coupled with the current mania for provenance, has altered the role of the writer. In its most extreme expression, we could believe that writers may only write about their individual selves, their own race, their own gender, their own generation, their own experience. I am not alone in feeling an overwhelming grief at this possibility. A significant change in the years since we started the festival is the proliferation of writing courses. The University of Auckland and Victoria University offer the most prestigious of these, with places hotly contested. Twenty years ago, the Auckland course was in its infancy, taught by Witty Ihemira, Mike Johnson and myself, and attracted writers such as Tom Sainsbury and Linda Olson, who went on to have brilliant careers. Since then, the course has come of age under the tutelage of Paula Morris, who has produced writers such as Ruby Porter, Rosetta Allen, Gina Cole, who has gone on to single-handedly invent a whole new genre, South Pacific science fiction, Rose Carlyle, Caroline Barron, and Amy McDade. Victoria University's IML initiated by Bill Manhire and now headed by Damien Wilkins, himself an excellent writer, produces year after year prize-winning authors, as noted above. Because of these courses, the quality of submissions to publishers has improved. But there is a drawback, too, in that second submissions from writers may not be as good as the first, since the writer is now functioning without the support of classmates or teacher. I have to this point not even begun on non-fiction, history, the essay, another form having a moment in the sun, or art writing. It seems to me that we have been in rude health in all of these genres for a long time. If we could time travel backwards exactly 10 years to the 2011 festival, we would enjoy Mary Kisler with her Angels and Aristocrats, Early European Art in New Zealand, Francis Walsh with Inside Stories, A History of the New Zealand Housewife, 1890 to 1975, and Douglas Lloyd Jenkins showing us how we have dressed since 1940. Steve Braunius and Jane Usher took us to Antarctica, and Peter Simpson discussed Leo Benzeman's place in our art and literature, a talk that had been originally intended for Christchurch Art Gallery but was cancelled because of the earthquakes. Flip forward to the riches of this year's festival and a small sample shows Francis Walsh again taking us to sea via the Maritime Museum, Patrick Reynolds and John Walsh taking us on a tour of our city's architecture, Dame Claudia updating our understanding of the treaty and Alan Duff taking a leaf from Australian Stan Grant's Talking to My Country to give us conversations with my country. It is a difficult thing to judge. But it seems to me 
that we have our culture and our nationality firmly under the microscope, and this can only be a good thing. As the world opens up again post-COVID, we may not only go out into it, but also receive guests and new immigrants knowing more clearly who we are. And in the last minutes remaining, I would like to make some predictions for the next 20 years, or perhaps a closer future. The quarterly New Zealand books will rise from the ashes. The cancelled funding to the treasured and vitally important magazine is shameful and appalling. Paula Morris's brainchild, the Academy of New Zealand Letters, will grow in reputation and influence. E-books will continue to form a substantial part of the market, up from the current 24%, but people will continue to treasure the printed word. There will be a plethora of books on anxiety and overthinking, <laughs> subjects that are already on the upward incline. There will be shelf after shelf of thinly disguised memoir purporting to be novels. There will be a pandemic of novels set during COVID. And depending on how many other viruses arrive out of our broken world, this could become as absorbing a setting as the Second World War was for earlier generations. Writers Carl Nixon, Rose Carlyle, Catherine Chigi, and Ben Sanders will have their names in brighter lights and bulging bank accounts. Poets will go forth and multiply poems massively. Another New Zealander will win the booker, I'm not saying who. <laughs> Books written in te reo will proliferate as more and more of the population speak the language. The urge for diversity will fade because we will have arrived there with bells on. New Zealand literary culture can only develop and grow. Two decades from now, those who stand here in our place will have many reasons to celebrate. Thank you. Tanakoe, you've been listening to a podcast from the 2021 Auckland Writers' Festival Waituhi o Tāmaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.